Yeah, so Father Dave Nix, in our in our conversation to rediscover, recapture, return to the sense of the sacred, I was thinking that for as long as I've been a Catholic since 2006, I just always noticed there's always some sort of new program, you know, some sort of new initiative, sometimes coming out of diocese, um, sometimes started by different apostolates. I'm thinking of the, the chosen program that we use for confirmation when I was a catechist. I'm thinking the alpha program. I, I've seen different places. I've seen things started by dioceses like Detroit, like Renew Our Church or something like that. And and then now the thing that's going on in the United States is the um, Eucharistic Revival, which, you know, next year is going to be this this big hoopa loopa, yeah. you know, in, in Indianapolis. So over like $20 million or something like that we're spending. So we seem to always be wanting to program, do something, some sort of a new program initiative to help Catholics discover their faith. But it doesn't seem to be moving the needle, at least from my perspective. And what do you think? Well, thanks for having me, David. Um, you know, we've become a very intellectual group of people in modern catechesis right now. Um, and I know that probably sounds ironic or hypocritical for people that are online, people like you and me, for me to say that it's it's become very intellectual. But if we're truly an incarnational people, then the sacraments are going to teach us by the very actions that we're doing. And so one of my problem with these programs is they're only looking at the intellectual where, as you know, I do all the old seven sacraments. And one of the things I love about the traditional sacraments is um, you learn reverence and you learn who literally who God is by the physical actions that you go through in the old sacraments. So like you can read a Scott Hahn book on the Eucharist, which I like, I like his work a lot. But then you go to your church and, you know, your second grade teacher from 20 years ago is handing out the Eucharist in a miniskirt. There's a disconnect between, sorry for the visual there. There's a, there's a disconnect between everything you just read in Scott Hahn's book and everything that you're bringing your kids to see uh, with their eyes and touch with their hands, unfortunately. And are they smelling any of the incense? And so all these programs are there to replace what was incarnational in our catechesis before Vatican II, that you simply learned reverence and adoration of God. And so I think the problem with these, with these programs is um, it's actually teaching something different than what kids are seeing. And it's very hard to believe this is the Son of God if, like I said, your second grade teacher is handing out Jesus um, with non-consecrated hands. If you look at the book called uh, Index of Leading Catholic Indicators, it actually showed that the United States was exploding with vocations from 1900 to 1960. Uh, vocations to the priesthood, vocations to the brotherhood. I know some people debate if marriage is a vocation, but let's call it a vocation. Um, marriages were doing great. Baptisms were explo exploding. Catholic schools coast to coast in the United States were all exploding. We had no programs from 1900 to 1960. And the, the amount of people that were even coming into the Catholic Church 
is absolutely tremendous. And this is, you can get this book, uh, it's done by Notre Dame in Indiana. So this isn't like some super rad trad production. It's produced by Notre Dame Index of Leading Catholic Indicators. And it shows that we were, we Catholics were exploding from 1900 to 1916. It wasn't just immigrants. It was actually conversions, people uh, becoming priests, people becoming nuns. And then what happened uh, in 1965 is every single number just absolutely tanked, except for one number, which was annulments, and those exploded. From the early 1900s to about the same time you're, you're talking about, the same time frame, I always thought it was interesting that in the United States, you're, you're culturally, you're culturally black Catholics, they had that, they were also experiencing that same amount of growth. Um, coming out of um, slavery, um, where you know a vast number of you know so-called Black Americans were to the early 1970s, they had they grew by a million, one million, and now they're you know the USCCB numbers that same culturally Black Catholic group at about 750,000. So the, the needle hasn't moved yet during the same time. Um, where, um, uh, you know, people thought it was um, a, a lot of difficulty for, for some places in, um, in, in the country. Yet, despite that, their, their numbers grew. So that's fascinating. No programs. Um, we're talking about the, the 20s and the 30s where it was kind of like hard for a lot of people. Um, there was less technology. But what was there? I guess we, if you know, if that the comment, I would like you to just dig more into that. I'd like you to maybe dig more into that. What's going on in society um, that's different than now? And also, I'd like you to touch on just the physicality of the liturgy, because when people think of physicality now, they may think of the nervous order in a sense of how um, the participatory aspect of it. And, you know, I, I guess we can get that idea, you know, God, the same God who saved you without your cooperation won't save you without your cooperation, St. Augustine, you know, so there is that, that the participation in the divine life. But the physicality, so can you talk about those two things, that the physicality of liturgy, also what's going on in culture during this time that you're saying that um, the, the Catholic faith in the United States was just growing? Yeah, I have two thoughts on that. Um one is Sister Mary Wilhelmina. I'm sure you know about her. She was the black Catholic from St. Louis who was a Benedictine. And um, she was the one that was found incorrupt just a couple months ago. And she uh, died. Um, what was it? I think it was five years ago and she was found fully incorrupt. And she's from not too far from where you spent a good chunk of your life, St. Louis. Um, interesting thing about Sister Mary Wilhelmina is in a time when, you know, she came back home to her mom and the Benedictines were switching to much more liberal habits, taking off the wimple, changing everything to look kind of like, I don't know, Latin American nurses sort of. And her mom said, no, you're not going to do that. And that was just a splash of cold water in her face. And she realized she's not going to do it. And she wrote a letter to Pope John Paul II, and it went like this. In a time, this isn't an exact quote, but it's kind of close. She said, in a time when everyone is telling us to have an African-American mass, just let us have the traditional Latin mass, which is our patrimony as Catholics, at least as Roman Catholics, right? And 
you mentioned culture. I think one thing that unified Catholics before Vatican II was you could go to mass in any part of the world and it would still be in Latin. Um, you know, obviously this, if you were traveling across Southeast Asia, you could go to mass in Cambodia and the sermon would be in um, Cambodian, but the mass would be in Latin. Same with Thai, uh, same with India. And so Sister Wilhelmina made an, a really excellent point that we don't need you throwing at us these condescending liturgies, you know? I mean, who's, who came up with this idea? We need, we need an African-American liturgy. I guarantee it was white liberals that came up with that notion, not blacks. And now the blacks probably got on board, but Sister Wilhelmina, who again was found incorrupt, that's a pretty good sign that God supports her opinion on this stuff, or that rather that she was supporting God's opinion on this. Um, it's, it's not unifying. You probably saw the news that just this week, the Mexican bishops approved of a Mayan mass. Well, Mayan mass, that just includes peppering it with pagan notions of sacrifice. And we know from the Psalms that the gods of the demons or the demons, sorry, the gods of the nations are demons. So this is peppering a Catholic liturgy with demonic elements. So Sister Mary Wilhelmina found something that, that united us across all cultures. I'll tell you a story. When I was doing mission work in India, I was talking to some young guys who had just had a conversion and, and they, were not, they were by no means traditionalists. I was just, <coughs> excuse me, moving into the Latin mass myself. And these young guys in their 20s were, you know, they were bragging a little bit. They said, you know, in India, when we do something religious, we have millions of people show up. And so they were telling me about some of these uh, different get togethers that they had in India for Catholics. And they said, you know, when we had, when we have a million Catholics show up in India, we'll have like a mass in Tamil at 8 a.m. and a mass in Bengali at 9 a.m. and a mass in English at 10 a.m. and a mass in Hindi at 11 a.m. And at the 8 a.m., 100,000 people come and 9 a.m., 100,000 people come and 10 a.m., 100,000 people come and 11 a.m., 100,000 people come. And I didn't want to push them too hard into like starting to think about the Latin mass because they were just barely waking up to the faith, period. But I thought I could give a little bit of pushback. And I said, and what did Indians do before Vatican II? And they all hung their head, the three or four guys I was talking to, and they go, we all worship together. There wasn't a mass in Tamil. There wasn't a mass in Bengali. There wasn't a mass in English. There wasn't a mass in Hindi. There was one single mass. So this notion that, that we have to throw at people their own cultures, it's, it's actually not unifying at all. Do you want me to jump into the, what you mentioned on the incarnational part? Yeah. Um, yeah. Can you talk more about yeah, just the, the physical aspect of the liturgy and how that connects to the sacred and, and Christ? Yeah. Well, I know you've spent a little bit of time in the Byzantine rites. And one of the notions in that some of the Eastern Orthodox have, not all of them, but one of the notions that some Eastern Orthodox have is that simply attending divine liturgy in the sacraments is catechesis enough. Now, the Eastern churches in the first millennium, even before the schism, had they had catechism. So that's not exactly it's not exactly true. But the East does have a sense that you can learn a huge part of the faith by just walking into the church, seeing the icons, crossing yourself, prostrating, brushing the ground smelling the incense, seeing the giant icons, understanding uh, that, that Mary is the Holy Theotokos, who is of one substance with 
Jesus and his humanity and, and God the Father is of one substance with him and his divinity. I mean, you can learn so much by just attending an Eastern divine liturgy. And so there's a sense in the East, and I would actually propose in the ancient Roman rites too, the seven old sacraments of the Roman Catholic Church also, that because your body is fully involved, unlike the Novus Ordo, because your body is fully involved, you, you actually imbibe the faith in an incarnational way. And I would say this was even true. You know, I, I recently reread the book, um, the autobiography of St. Therese of Lisieux. And now everybody, some traditionalists are actually a little bit wary of her thinking she's kind of like a liberal modernist. She's not at all. In fact, if you read her autobiography, this was a time when she probably received Holy Communion in the late 19th century, 10 or 20 times a year. Her and all these Carmelite nuns in the late 19th century, probably received communion 10 times a year. These nuns who've never committed mortal sin. So I'm not saying reception of Holy Communion is the most important. I mean, it is certainly the pinnacle of union, but it's not required to be worshiping God with your body. I would say going in, kneeling all that time, um, smelling the incense, seeing these beautiful vestments, all of the things that you see in the ancient traditional Latin mass or the Eastern Byzantine liturgies, even if you're not in a state of grace, even if you're not, or even if you are in grace and you're not prepared to receive Holy Communion, there's something incarnational about all the catechesis in the Eastern rites and the ancient Roman rite. And can we spend a little more time there as well? Because I think that that, that is something that we're... Um... I think really connects to to the sacred that I don't want us to leave just yet. As you spoke about, you're getting into sacred space and how that's essential to our faith that this is a set apart space for worship, and how even in the West, the the buildings and the cathedrals, the monasteries were just built in a way to worship. Recently, um, after I saw you at the Coalition for Council Priests, I went over to, before I left Chicago, I went over to St. John Cantius and worshiped there. And you know, it was so refreshing being back in that type of atmosphere that is conducive to worship, right? And I miss that, you know, being over here. Um, it, it was just so much easier just to get into the worship. And even after the mass was over, you're still in that sacred space. And it, it was just everything, everything around you was just conducive and was there to help you worship. And in this, how you felt, it, even in a like small, in a, even in the bigger cathedrals, Father, how you feel so small and, you know, the ceiling is so high is that, that, so you know that you, you so you understand that God is just completely other. He's so far, yet He also comes to you. He condescends in the liturgy, and it's just the art, as you said. So I wonder if you could just some, spend some more time there and just teach us about um, the importance of sacred space and sacred time. Yeah, you know, I we know that Saint Pope Saint Pius the Tenth said modernism is the synthesis of all heresies. And I think we as traditionalists hear that so often, it's kind of in one ear and out the other, right? So what is modernism? Does it mean you shouldn't be doing, you know, video podcasts across from, you know, Germany to Denver? No, modernism doesn't mean you can't use modern items. This is, this is how I would extrapolate from the teachings of Pope St. Pius X. What is modernism? I would say 
it's two things. It's replacing a God-centered religion with a man-centered religion. And I would say it's replacing the supernatural with the natural. That's, if you really read Pope St. Pius X closely, that's the two horns of modernism. So let's talk, and those actually have a huge overlap, right? Let's just talk about the first one. To replace a God-centered religion with a man-centered religion, that is lived out, I should say it's built out, in exactly what you just described. Modern churches are in the round, you're facing each other, you're seeing each other, and you're celebrating the community. And there's a geography, there's an architecture about that. And we even see this. This is why so many churches in the past 60, 70 years have been built in the round. So you can see each other and, and you want to see the priest's face and and they're flat and they look like kind of Moscow subway stations, you know, where the old school way of designing cathedrals, like you just described, everything points up. Now, of course, God is everywhere. It doesn't, we're not so immature as to believe God's only up, but Christ repeatedly when he prayed looked up and we know every time in the bible old and new testament that there is a place of prayer it is up so yeah god is everywhere but in some sense he's especially in the heavens and this is why we're to look up and this is why churches did point up in fact your eyes are even brought up by the high altar to the heavens and this is because like you said god is so far beyond us we cannot really worship the right way if we don't recognize God's transcendence. Now, of course, he's also imminent in the incarnation, in the Eucharist, but there's no real danger these days and lack of speaking of God's imminence, but there's a great lack of understanding God's transcendence. And when you went into one of these medieval cathedrals of Europe or even Chicago or even St. Louis, the Great Lakes, your eyes, your entire being is drawn up and outside of yourself. And so I agree, David, that the uh, ancient way, even really the way up till about 1950s of designing churches, everything was transcendent. And and really, we're so, we, we tend as creatures, and this isn't just a post-Vatican II thing, this is, this is all of us since Adam and Eve, we tend to be self-centered that wouldn't you want that one hour a week that you go into church? I mean, the medieval times they went into church a lot more than once a week. But let's say you just go in once a week. Don't you want a break from just being self-centered? Don't you just want one out of 168 hours a week to see beyond yourself, to have your eyes lifted to heaven, to not to not focus on you, but to focus on the Blessed Trinity? And that, I guess that's a great segue to um, ask you about the sacredness of time. Um, I think the church is like big on this. You know, there's always like a time for something. You know, you, we have the we have liturgical seasons. There's there's also a time for fasting and abstinence. There there's the, the liturgy itself is built upon. There's a time for this, a time for that. I mean, it's God Himself. You know, He you know creation. You know, first day, second day, third day. Jesus does the you know does the same. There's there's a sacred time seems to be something we should. There's a message that we should get. Um, so could you talk about like the, the importance of sacred time and then contrast that maybe with what's going on now where we, we don't even have time to pray. There was time for porn. There was, there was time for 
and self-indulgence. There's, I guess we make time for more, we're, we're, engaged, we're engaged in making more time for sin than sacred things. So is there a way to talk about what the liturgy has for us for sacred time versus this, the world? I think the need for sacred time is so built into us by God that this probably isn't the answer you kind of expect, but it's the first thing that comes to mind. When I'm driving around the United States, I've been shocked, David, at how many Protestant churches are now adopting liturgical seasons. And I'm not saying that in a sarcastic way. I see Lent here. I see now there's Advent. They talk about Holy Week in all these Protestant churches and not just like high Anglican you're seeing, you're seeing these terms in like mega churches also. And I don't have a problem with that. I mean, I think there's the reason that they're doing that is because they realize if there's football season and there's basketball season and there's hockey season and stuff, man wasn't made to only look at the year through the eyes of professional sports. I think even Protestants are slowly realizing it's built in us to have different seasons. And so the very fact that Protestants are waking up to this shows that it's it's something God has stamped on our soul. It's not man-made, it's how God has made us. And one of the, you know, my probably my favorite order is the Jesuits, second would be Franciscans, third, the Carmelites. I've never had much of an interest in Benedictine spirituality, but I will tell you what is what really captures me about Benedictine spirituality is how their entire lives are founded around the liturgical year, which actually falls in perfect concert with the seasons, at least in the Northern hemisphere of, you know, Advent is this time of darkness. This is when Christ is born. And then you're fasting through spring. And I don't know if you're like, I have hypothyroid, so I always get cold when I'm fasting. So it's it's hard to fast in Lent. But I notice even as I'm fasting in Lent, the days are getting longer. It's getting warmer out. So as my body's shutting down through Lent, through fasting, the days are getting longer and warmer. So even that's programmed for that. And then, of course, if you're not spending all your time inside looking at a screen, when Easter comes, there's life exploding everywhere. The the birds are reproducing and the rabbits are reproducing and there's new life on the trees and the cherry blossoms are out. And so really the Benedictine lifestyle of pray and work follows the entire liturgical year, which flows in concert with all of nature in the 12 months and the four seasons, you know? And so <clears throat> God has programmed all of this perfectly nature and the liturgical year and the aura labora work and, and labor. And I would propose that Catholic families through the middle ages would have been living this very closely to the Benedictines. I mean, they weren't celibate and they didn't, they weren't praying four hours a day, but they had learned a lot from the Benedictines. And as you know, you're living in Europe right now, all the old towns were founded around the church and often a monastery where they would go light their candles, they would get spiritual direction. Even if they weren't attending daily mass, they still had the church as the center of, of their city, even of their towns, actually, in the Middle Ages. And so time uh, wasn't really, almost it wasn't really something they had to discuss because it was so ingrained in the Catholic culture through the Middle Ages that it was just part of who you were. It was as, it was as real as the summer. No one, no one sat around and said, you know, 
isn't it interesting the spring is different from the summer? I mean, it was so ingrained into you. You knew Advent was different from Lent and you knew the post-Pentecost time was different from the octave of Pentecost, you know? And, and so it was, it was part of Catholic life back then. But we can already see this stamped in the human heart and even nature before we even talk about the liturgical year. Yeah, I'm just thinking about that, how even families in um, rural families or families who are more um, um, agrarian, is that the right word? How they, um, farming families, how that liturgical calendar would make, yeah, would make sense for them, right? Um, Mm -hmm. And how, um, and when you mention the sports, the football season, basketball season, you know, I remember I used to be a big sports guy and that, that's how my season went, you know, basketball season is, is over. And there, and there was this, there was this period of when there was kind of nothing, you know, unless you're like, you know, you're into like, you know, I, I don't know what they do in, in, in July, but, but you're just waiting for a football season to begin. Right. And there was this thing. Yeah. Well, how is that? So can you dig into that just a little more? Like, How's it? How does that? How does living our life liturgically with the liturgical seasons and, and the masses that that surrounds all that that's built into that that direct us towards that? Um, how's it just a much better life? And how does that lead us to the sacred versus mm-hmm. what the world, what, how the world wants to live our lives? You know, one every every two years and wants us to focus on these election seasons, right? Let's let's. <laughs> Let's focus on let's pay so much attention to these election election cycles because that that's really going to save your life. Yeah, um, as long as you get to the sacrament of the ballot booth, you know. <laughs> so, so the world is trying to teach yeah. us these different things, but what is what is the church trying to teach us about how to live live our lives through these liturgical seasons? Well, again, let's talk how it's already stamped into human nature, even before we talk about divine revelation. Even though obviously God is the one who designed the natural law. Look at how many secular male podcasters right now are talking about intermittent fasting, which is great. I'm, this is, again, I'm happy that they're doing it, right? But why, why is this this big thing for all these podcasters and vloggers right now to talk about intermittent fasting? Because they found out the human body does a lot better with intermittent fasting. Now, I'm not saying that's the only reason why God programmed that into Catholicism to have more hardcore fasts in Advent and Lent than, than anything we do today. But it's maybe one of the top 20 reasons why he did that. I mean, the first reason is to to enter into the desert with Christ, to do penance for our sins, to honor God, and to become detached from our sins, to empty ourselves so we can be filled with God, to worship him better, all that. But way down the line, we have the advantage that fasting has been proven to flush the body of toxins, you know? And so what's so interesting is we keep finding that God has designed Catholicism not only to worship him best, but even to free us of these toxins. You know, another thing that a lot of secular men who aren't even Christian are talking about on their podcast is getting rid of pornography. That's really interesting because all of a sudden you have all these guys who 10 years ago would have said there's no problem with pornography. Now, guys who are not Catholic, not Christian are saying, actually, this is leading to addictions that's really harming marriages and and we won't go into the physiology of what it's harming. I think most of your listeners can guess. But, you know, um, 
the seasons don't just worship God best. That's the main reason that we have these different seasons in Catholicism, but they also detach us from habits that crept into the human psyche and human body even before the industrial revolution, you know? And so let's, let's talk about Lent. I mean, you give up all these things for Lent and then you have a big Easter feast and it tastes all the food that you eat on Easter day is just like this explosion of goodness in your belly and your mouth and even your mind. If you've actually entered into the fast, um, you know, it's been said before, you can't really feast well if you don't fast well. So that time of feasting, God actually does want us to enjoy it, I believe, but you really can't if you're not, if you're not fasting. And so the old rite, if you look at how many octaves were in the old rite calendar, and they started getting rid of these octaves even before Vatican II, but if you look at how many octaves there were, there was something like 15 octaves in the up to the 19th century. And the before these octaves there was it wasn't just pentecost and easter you had like the octave of john the baptist and a peter and paul and i think even numerous marian saints who had a full octave of celebrations but the vigil was always one of of fasting and that's why the vigil was always in purple so like august 14th is in purple and december 7th is in purple all the purple and before these big marian feast days means penance and so you're supposed to fast right you're supposed to do penance for your sins get to confession and, and see, that's just how we as humans after the fall have to function. If we're going to have a giant celebration on August 15th for the Assumption of Mary, and yes, that was around long before the ex-Cathodist statements, we have to realize. Um, if we're going to have a giant feast on, on Our Lady's Feast, which we should do, we should have a big party and everyone should eat a lot of food and everything. I'm all for that. But you do a lot better if August 14th is a quiet day where you go to confession and you don't eat meat, you know, and and that helped Catholics enter into the celebration by being penitential the day before, because we're not in heaven yet. You know, a big part of this is that we're post-lapsarian after the fall. If, if no, if none of us had sinned, we we wouldn't really need vigils. But since we have sinned, we have to have vigils before the feast. We have to have a penitential day in purple of fasting and silence with no meat before we get to the solemn high mass and a giant turkey on whatever feast day, you know? I think you, you've narrated very well, um, Father, and David Nix, about how we got here. Um, um, what's, what, 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 have we been, what have we been missing? Uh, what have we lost? along the way um but for my last question for this your, your, your wonderful catechesis and instruction that you, you're giving us here i wanted to know would you what would you say about how to move forward if it's not a new program if it doesn't happen to be the case that you know, if, if the Norris Order Mass just stays just how it is for the next 50 years or however long, it was just, it's just, just going to be with us. That's just going to be a predominant liturgical rite. Um, what would your instruction be, though, for, for Catholics listening to your catechesis about what can we do in our lives and how can what can we do to influence the lives of our neighbor to um, orient ourselves to a deeper sense of the sacred? 
Yeah, I mean, if I were Pope, I would just return the whole church to the old seven sacraments and encourage people to go to the old seven Roman sacraments or or the Byzantine uh, rites, which which you've been in. But, you know, let's say we don't have a traditionalist Pope, like you said, let's say the Novus Ordo continues the next 50 years. One of the best things I can encourage people to do is to bring home a spirituality. Um, you and I have talked offline about the Byzantine rites, my sister and her and my brother-in-law raising their family, Byzantine Catholic. and. Um, one of the things I love about both the ancient Roman rite and the ancient Eastern rites is there's a whole theology to bring home. Like my sister's family has the Chotkis, which is the Jesus prayer bracelet. They have icons on their walls. They have the oil candles before the icons, you know, um, so there's a whole culture to bring home. You and I, you and I can't change the sacramental trajectory of the entire Catholic church on a podcast, but, but people can bring home. <laughs> Um, people can bring home those things that, that make it sacred. You see, when Catholics have isolated God to just one hour a week, then it's really no wonder that we're under the punishment of modernism. I blame 90% of modernism on clerics, but really clerics have come from families and the families weren't taking the faith seriously. Again, I'm, I want your listeners to hear, I blame 90% of modernism on clerics, not on lay people. But that 10% is that we priests have come from families and these families were getting lazy and and losing the faith, you know? And so the faith has to be brought home uh, and actually lived more than one hour a week. Pray the daily rosary. If you're Eastern Catholic, get out the chotkis, light up the candles, um, do kiss those icons and brush the ground with your, with your hands and prostrate. Um, and also, someone once asked Alice von Hildebrand, the wife of Dietrich von Hildebrand, um, am I saying the last name correctly? I don't want to people. yeah, it's close to von Hildebrand. Someone once asked Alice, what's the number one virtue missing today? And without skipping a beat, she said reverence. And she didn't just mean reverence to God, even though that's primary. She meant reverence between people. You know, I think she died a year or two ago, pretty close to 100 years old. And one of the most shocking things that she had seen between Europe and America go down the tubes was any reverence, not just for older people, but for people of your same age, people younger than you. And she said one of, I mean, if you, if you asked her when she was alive, what's the best way to get the sacred going again? I think one of her very first answers, if it weren't to be a liturgical answer, would be, reverence for each other you know and that doesn't mean you have to live in a time warp and take your hat off to people you meet and i mean she's talking real basic levels of like looking people in the eyes and not using cuss words and not taking our lord's name in vain and not wearing yoga pants and you know and not you know um spitting in people's faces and chewing gum at church and i mean real basic things you don't have to you don't have to pretend like it's in the 1920s to show basic levels of respect to people. And so even though you and I can't change the entire you know, liturgical trajectory of the Catholic Church right now, we can show reverence first to our elders and then to people our age and even, even respect to people a lot younger than us. I've noticed that when, when you respect kids, they, they respect you back, you know? Um, but I think that, I mean, elders is a huge place to start. I mean, there's, there's almost no respect for old people in our society right now. And it's really, it's really sad how, how bad old people, elderly people are treated. That would be a great place to start.
to restore the sacred is treating older folks with reverence. Father David Nix, thank you for such a practical and digestible catechesis and instruction about returning to the sacred. Thank you. Thanks for having me, David. <laughs>